This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. could just go right into welcome to overdue blah 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 we could let's try it out welcome to overdue this is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read my name is craig my name is andrew and sometimes we have stuff to say at the top of an episode and sometimes we don't so let's just get into it every week one of us reads a book and then tells the other one about it the only condition (laughs) Is that the person who read the book can't have ever read it before? That is the only condition. I this started four four years ago. Four years ago. Yeah, we missed our fourth year anniversary on I air. Missed every anniversary that we've ever done. Uh, we started this four years ago as an excuse to hang out and to read more. And four years later, oof, here we are. Oof, we're still in it, huh? The only question <laughs> I have is how you doing. <laughs> How you do it? Wait, what? <laughs> Why are you Joey, Joeying me? Did you read a book about friends or Matt LeBlanc? I did read a book about some friends. They also happen to be family. I read The Lion, Witch, The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe mm-hmm. by C.S. Lewis, also known by his friends as Clive Staples Lewis. I believe his friends actually called him Jack. Well, but his <laughs> real his real name is Clive Staples Lewis. <laughs> Okay, well, his friends know him better than I did. Um, you know, Clive Jack is short for Clive. I, mean, I think you should, you should know that. It's pretty clear. That's true. Uh, we have talked about uh, Mr. Staples Lewis on a previous episode of the show back in July 2015. Andrew read "Till We Have Faces." Mm-hmm. Um, that is the episode that spurred me into reading the Lord of the Rings. Uh, allow me to quote verbatim. Andrew, did you read Lord of the Rings? Me, no. Andrew, oh Jesus Christ. (laughs) Was this a typed or was it a spoken conversation? This was a spoken conversation we had on air that basically blackmailed me into reading the Lord of the Rings. I didn't blackmail you into doing anything, but you guys, all you listeners out there should know that when Craig gets salty about me making him read Lord of the Rings, he is not putting on an axe for no. the benefit of our audience. It's... He got pretty, he got a little upset with me for making him read those three books right in order. Yeah, it was, it was a rough time. Uh, I, so I have no qualms about me cracking the whip on Infinite Jest for you. That's yeah. That's so, uh, so. Craig has read the first book in the Chronicles of Narnia, the first book by um, publication order. Yes, not chronological order. In a little bit, but yeah, this was the this was the original published in um, 1949, which is around like 10 years after he initially had the idea for it. Correct. Um, he's he has said the lion, and I believe that is shorthand for the full title of the book. The mm. lion all began with a picture of a fawn carrying an umbrella and parcels in a snowy wood. This picture had been in my mind since I was about 16. Then one day when I was about 40, I said to myself, "Let's try to make a story about." It. let's try shall we 
Um, and and it was the first in a seven book series of like fantasy literature. So it was um, the original publication order was Line with Witch in the Wardrobe, um, Prince Caspian, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the Silver Chair, um, the Horse and His Boy, uh-huh. uh, the Magician's Nephew, and then the Last Battle. Did you do that off the top of your head? I did. Good work. You, um, the Prince Caspian colon the return to Narnia, but I'll give you points for it. It's good. Well, the original or the original books that I had, like the which were my mom's copies originally, I think mm. just had Prince Caspian. Okay. I think that okay. subtitle may be newer. And that's not the the like order of events as they occur in the world of Narnia. No, like chronologically, if you were to buy them now. I believe the order goes Magician's Nephew, Line the Witch in the Wardrobe, Prince Caspian, um, Don Treader, Silver Chair. Wait, no, Horse and His Boy goes in between Line yes. the Witch in the Wardrobe and Prince Caspian. Correct. Um, then Don Treader. And then Don Treader, and then Silver Chair, and then Last Battle, which I think, like, so this, this change was made in 94, I think, at the behest of Lewis's stepson. Well, and it has um, to do with when Harper Collins took over as one of the primary publishers of the of the collection as right. well. But I just I it's too bad because I think that it does the books a bit of a disservice. Like they had a flow before mm, okay. that you lose a little bit here. And also I think the first three are much stronger than the rest of them. Mm. Um like especially like the first one is is better than all of the rest of them. And then the <laughs> And then the first three of them sort of serve as this as a trilogy. Okay. Um, and then I think I think Silverchair plods a little bit and it pays attention to the characters I don't care about. Um, Horse and his boy is like a side story that happens simultaneously with the events of the first one, but in kind of a different place. Weird. Okay. Um, and then Magician's nephew is actually okay. It's like a prequel thing about the creation of Narnia. And then the last battle is just like. What if we got really obvious about our Christian allegory? Like really obvious. Oh, like extra obvious. It. Like super extra obvious. Okay. Uh, real oh, man, I have a I have a fact to drop on you about Susan. Oh. Later. Okay. Well, hit just, me with like, it as we're as we're wrapping up, I want to hear how you react. Okay. Okay. Great. Because I'm going to spoil Narnia. We're just going to spoil it. So. Okay. Um, real quick, we'll talk about uh, Mr. Staples Lewis uh, a little bit. He was born in 1898 in Belfast. Belfast. Uh, he went to Oxford, taught at Magdalen College. He grew up reading a lot of George MacDonald. He created an imaginary world named Boxen, where animals talked and had adventures. How do you, how do you spell Boxen? Uh, B-O-X-E-N. Huh. I wish it were I-N apostrophe. Are there any oxen in oh i bet i bet there are plenty of oxen in the boxen next to the fox and the hounds Mm -hmm. it's a slant rhyme um he wrote (laughs) the space trilogy uh around the around world war ii he's we're going to get into his friendship uh with J.R.R. tolkien a little bit later they were members of the inklings which is a literary group in the time he did marry late in life to Joy Davidian Freshman. I'm hoping that's not autocorrect. I hope that that's actually... Joy Davidman is the name that I have. That's better. I don't sure. know who Joy Davidian is. <laughs> I don't know. In 1956, he married Joy Division. 
love is tearing apart. <laughs> uh, and Richard Attenborough made a movie about them called the Sh- called Shadowlands, which is pretty cool. Yeah, because she died um, of cancer like just a few years after they got married, mm, which is mm. really sad. Uh, and then she was she was relatively young. I think she was in her mid forties when sure. she passed away. So, oof. and then he passed away in nineteen sixty three. Um, we talked about this on the last episode that he on on his previous episode that he died the same day as JFK, right? I think. Yep, twenty second of November nineteen sixty three. Um, and as you said, uh, Narnia was actually published relatively late in his career. Then, after all of his Christian apologia, after the space trilogy, after Till We Have Faces. Um, and yeah, it was illustrated by Pauline Baines, which, uh, he like found her work and, and when he later got a, like a medal for one of the later books, he's like said, this is our medal, Pauline. So he really liked her work. Yeah. She illustrated all of them. And I believe those illustrations still go out in every modern edition of it. So it's not one of those things where that they sometimes do, where they change illustrations to make them more. No, I don't I, know, like yeah. more more eye catching or something, because the ones that are in there are pretty simple. Like they're mostly like outline work. They're, they're not they're especially f- elaborate. No, they're drawings. full. They're full color, but they're not because um, they're in the edition that I read. They are not. Uh, she doesn't always set a full page or a scene. Like there's a scene where it's if like yours, if yours are full color, then maybe they have changed something because they definitely were just black and white huh. in the ones I read. But go ahead. Um. They, I'm just, I'm just double checking the edition here. If it says illustrated you, in, yeah, you illustrated can also hold in me color, the up. illustrated in color by Pauline Baines. Uh, but then, like, here's Mr. Tumnus sitting in his office or whatever, sitting in his den, hanging out. Huh. I'm not, hmm, hmm. You might have just had a copy that didn't print in color. That's very possible. Yeah, maybe. But a lot of the, uh, sometimes she's just doing these like isolated moments where it's like, here's a beaver holding a sewing machine. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes it's like a full kind of landscape. And and later on in the book, when some really nasty stuff happens to Aslan, it's like a Hieronymus Bosch painting. It's terrifying. Um, But yeah, we talked a little bit about where this book came from. It apparently came from some dream where Lewis had a fawn in his head. Um, The opening is sort of inspired that these kids were displaced during World War II, during the bombings, during the Blitzkrieg. Yeah, because what would happen is you would send your kids out into the country so that if London or some other like major population center got bombed, your kid wouldn't be there. Yeah, so he actually had three schoolgirls uh, named Margaret, Mary, and Catherine who stayed at one of his homes uh, in 1939. And then he wrote like a short children's story about four other kids uh, that had to go away from London and, and had some adventures. Um, and then he said that Narnia, the word Narnia comes from some old map of Italy. Uh, he just liked the name Narni or Narnia. <laughs> and mm-hmm. It's halfway between Rome and Assisi. But like that's fine. Some like guy. I've, I've, I've made a D and D campaign before. I know what it is to just steal whatever cool sounding names that you find. Uh-huh. Uh huh. He dedicated the book to Lucy Barfield, who was the daughter, who's his goddaughter and his daughter of his friend Owen. Uh, yeah, and that's that's basically all the background I think we need. Uh, anything um, else you want to talk about? Else, I thought I wanted to talk quickly about Tolkien, Lewis, and Tolkien. 
Um, so they were friends. And in fact, like Tolkien was part of the reason why Lewis came back to Christianity after a few years of not subscribing to it. Yep. Um, but Tolkien never really loved the Chronicles of Narnia. What? Um, and I was I was doing research about this. Unfortunately, like the there's a paper called "Disparaging Narnia: Reconsidering Tolkien's View of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe" by um, Josh Long that I found that unfortunately I cannot see the full text of because it requires a subscription that I do not have. But <laughs> so you um, need to go back to grad school so you can read this essay. Right, I need to get this on JSTOR. <laughs> um, so the 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 most commonly cited reasons that I see for why Tolkien didn't love this is um, number one, uh, Lewis is pretty fast and loose about how he treats like myth, like existing mythological figures. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, so you might like one commonly cited example is this book has like fawns in it and also like Santa is there. Yeah. It's pretty great. <laughs> there's like a giant and then there's just animals and, and like also dryads and centaurs stuff. and stuff and like and, um, monkeys. It's yeah, it's all over the place. And when you know when those mythological figures have a traditional interpretation mm-hmm. or a traditional mm-hmm. background, Lewis often ignores it or like mixes it up or just makes it lighter. And Tolkien, you know, he was he translated Beowulf and he wrote this entire mythology for Lord of the Rings and. And even when he went back to stuff like dwarves and elves, like he was he was careful to retain like their classical characteristics instead of softening them up like a lot of um, children's fantasy and kidlet has done. Uh, so that's one big thing and maybe the biggest thing. Um, he also, it's said, may have been jealous of Lewis on a professional level because Lewis cranked out seven books in like six years, six or seven years. And they met with not like immediate overwhelming success and acclaim, but definitely they found an audience quickly. Yeah, they and, sold. Um, they sold well, even though I think there were some initial like, what are, what are these books? These books for kids. Yeah, What's they sort of went. They they read better now because I think we're used to fantasy having a sort of yeah sure whimsical thing about it but it was not that was not the zeitgeist at the at the time i couldn't help but think of some of the reactions we found to l frank Baum, mm-hmm. um or frank l Baum, l frank Baum, l frank Baum, l frank Baum, um and like initial folks being like what is this book with the wizard <laughs> and the what uh yeah what's up um so that yeah so there's that and then lord of the rings like it went through extensive revisions because tolkien was a perfectionist and it took something like a decade to even begin finding the audience that it eventually found. Um, And then the third thing is that Tolkien was famously critical of allegory. He wrote like a foreword to, I don't remember if it was the Hobbit or Lord of the Rings. I think it was Lord of the Rings um, that basically took issue with people who saw it as an allegory of world war one and or two and just, just stated his intense dislike for allegory and the Narnia books are pretty allegory heavy. Um, well, and Lewis was a scholar of allegory. Like he liked, he worked on uh, works from the late Middle Ages. He published a book called The Allegory of Love that got us interested in like medieval narratives that used a lot of allegory. 
Um, so he's certainly interested in it and like certainly did not shy away from it. Yeah, I mean, he he has said of Narnia, uh, the Narnian books are not as much allegory as supposal. Suppose there was a Narnian world and it, like ours, needed redemption. What kind of incarnation and passion might Christ be supposed to undergo there? Um, so, like, it is like Christ, though. <laughs> it, yeah. It is an allegory for the Christian tradition in the world that we live in. So uh, it seems like allegory to me, Clive. Well, we'll talk about it afterwards because I, I kind of see where he's coming from with that argument. And I think I also can, having read this for the first time now, can kind of see Tolkien's objection to the imperfection of that of the allegory. Right. It's really muddy. Okay. <laughs> so let's take a quick break and then we'll dive in to the world of Narnia. Yeah, come into my wardrobe. No. Let's go mm. in the land of spare oom. Um. <laughs> Craig. Andrew. Why do we always start our ad breaks off by saying each other's names? Because we just want to make sure that the other person is still there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if you've been following our show for a while, you probably know that we have a Patreon page up. Um, you can find a link at OverduePodcast.com or you can go to Patreon.com slash OverduePod. And one of the uh, reward tiers that we've got up there is that if you pledge at a certain level for a certain amount of time, I think it's um, 25 bucks a month for at least two months, um, we will plug a project for you on the mm-hmm. show. So mm-hmm. uh, that's that's why we are reading this message if you are interested in having one of your messages read, just go patreon.com slash overdue pod and we can work out the details from there. Craig, what do you what do you tell me about this week though? I have a message here from Buyer's Recourse. Now, Buyer's Recourse is a channel made for you, Andrew. Uh, Now, this is them speaking, not me. Our goal is to highlight and review products and gadgets that we firmly believe will add to your day-to-day life and to help you learn to use them effectively. We strive to purchase these review products ourselves so as to give you a fully unbiased review and experience them in the same way that you, the viewers, would. Uh, If you want to support the show, which is a a YouTube show, I believe, uh, by helping us purchase these products, we'll be starting a Patreon page, but you can follow them on Twitter at buyers underscore recourse. Uh, for updates on this and for links to the channel. Thanks for your time, everybody. So yeah, I've, I've watched a few of the videos. It, it's really focused on kind of hand, hands-on gadget experiences and, and what certain things are doing and, and how to get uh, the most out of certain new gadgets. So cool. yeah, you can go check out Buyer's Recourse. You can Google them, go to that Twitter that I said, that's at Buyer's underscore Recourse. Uh, and, and that's find B-U-Y-E-R-S. out more. Correct. And recourse, R E C O U R S E. I can read. And I can spell. Together we will take over the world. <laughs> Are you ready for this jelly? No. So let's talk about the book instead, please. <laughs> <laughs> So, Andrew, I'm going to tell you about this book as if you didn't know about it, but you need to help me along the way as if you do know about it. Capiche? Yes. Okay. Capiche. So, as we said, there are four kids who get kicked out of London so that they don't die during the Blitzkrieg. Yep. And this is Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy Pavensi. Pavensi? Pavensi. 
Pevensey. Pevensey. That sounds more British. Uh, as the book says, this is a story about something that happened to them when they went away from London during the war because of the air raids. And it's do you do you get a good pronunciation verdict? No, it's Pevensey, I believe. Pevensey. But um, did you? So that's you gave their names in order of age. I did. Um, in the book, I forget if it's really clear, like how old each of them is, or if it's just that each of them wow. are. Aged like relative to the others. It's more the latter. I want to say Peter's like twelve or something. Mm-hmm. I hope I'm not wrong about that. Um, I think he may. He feels like he might be a little older, but honestly, I don't know. Lucy is is clearly single digits. Mm-hmm. Um, but they already start doing stuff before they really talk about how old anyone is. So, yeah, I don't know. It's you're right. That's it's fine. It's yeah. it's not super important. It's just yeah. Or it become it, I'll say it becomes a little important in later books, but after you talk to me about this book, I can tell you some more Narnia stuff. Okay, cool. And and even all of I do want to point out all the asides that we're doing are very similar to how this book is written. The book is aware that there is a reader. It's written almost as if the narrator is telling you a story. Like even on the first page, there's a like oh they went to the house of professor diggory kirk and he had three servants and here are their names and in parentheses i'm going to tell you that these names don't matter <laughs> like on page one so there's they the, don't though no and they really don't and there's an interesting like so there's an interesting contract set up between the reader and the narrator from yeah. from even the beginning i mean sometimes when i'm reading a book i do wish it would tell me like okay this is what you should be paying attention to <laughs> Yeah, that would be very considerate of most books. Mm-hmm. Um, just to acknowledge that you might your attention might be wandering. So they're in this big old house, and they're away from their family, and they're staying there. They're away from school, uh, and it's like raining one day, and they're exploring the house. Lo and behold, Lucy finds her way into this room that has a big wardrobe in it, and she goes inside, and it's not just a wardrobe. It's snowy on the ground, it's kind of cold, and she sees a lamppost just in the woods, and she realizes she's in the woods. <laughs> and it's kind of weird uh, for little Lucy to wander into the woods, and she stumbles upon, as you, as you alluded to earlier, this fawn, like, carrying some packages and an umbrella mm-hmm. in the forest. Isn't she... I remember enjoying the description of her walking through the wardrobe for the first time because isn't she like, man, this wardrobe is deep. Boy, <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of coats back <laughs> here. Oh, man, of... now, now it feels like pine trees. What's up? Yeah, let me see if I can find it real quick. Where I don't know if you've seen a wardrobe, but they're not super deep. Like a kid could hide in the back of it, but if you can take any steps toward the back of a wardrobe... Yeah, You're not really talking about a wardrobe anymore. So at one point she says, this must be a simply enormous wardrobe. <laughs> then she noticed that there was something crunching under her feet. I wonder, is that more mothballs, she thought? Uh, and then she's like pushing through some coats and all of a sudden it's branches scratching her in the face. Uh, and then she realizes that she's in the woods. So then she meets uh, our good friend, Mr. Tumnus who is the the fawn that we've been talking about. He's mm-hmm. about her size. Uh, he is like a Greek, like, satyr, basically. Um, and he's just living in the woods, and he invites her to come back to her to his house. 
and like chill and drink some tea and eat some food. Mm-hmm. Um, and he keeps referring to her as a daughter of Eve, uh, as we learn that the children from the Earth realm are referred to as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And that's uh, from like Adam and Eve, the Bible. Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, from the Bible. From the, the Bible fame. The bot of the Bible, correct. Um, and he tells her all about the fact that she's in Narnia now, that it's been winter forever, there's no Christmas even, and that this woman named the White Witch is in charge, and she's made it winter forever. And it's such a strange specific amount, like period of time, like always winter but never Christmas. <laughs> Narnia is a is a realm where it's the third week of December for all of eternity, <laughs> or all of all of conventional February forever. Oh man, yeah, yeah February right? is pretty rough. If, if the vibe was more February y, then yes, and it just seems like Christmas will never come again because it's all away on the other end of the uh-huh. year. Uh huh. Though with the events that fo- unfold later in the book, I think it makes more sense that it would be early December. Yes, that's true. Um, and he breaks down crying while they're talking because he has to admit to Lucy. <laughs> that uh, the White Witch would really prefer that he hand Lucy over. Wait, who's the White Witch? I said the White Witch is this woman. I don't, you don't get any other name of her in the book. I think her name is like Jadis or something. I think you get, I'm not, yeah, you do get her real name, I think, once in this book. When she's talking to Edmund, she might refer to herself as Jadis. I believe so, yeah. Um, But she is in charge and she uh, is hunting for sons of Adam and daughters of Eve mm-hmm. um, because she's worried that if they fill the four thrones of Care Paravel, uh, that she will lose all of her power and the winter will go away. So she's an evil lady, and she can even listen to you through the trees, uh, and you never know who's working for her. It's very, like, Gestapo-y. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of breaks down because he's like, oh, Lucy, you're such a cool pal that I just met who came out of a wardrobe. Um, but I I can't turn you over to her, even though I would probably get like torn into pieces and turned into a statue. Uh, you need <laughs> you need to get out of here. And so he he helps her get back to the wardrobe and she leaves. And no one believes her, especially Edmund. <laughs> Edmund, who's a little wiener Edmund's he's a, a wiener. big wiener he's the second youngest um so he's he was the youngest for a period of time and is the second oldest boy like he's peter's above him and yeah I think, like that's got to be a like that's a very specific kind of middle child dumb that mm-hmm. that apparently makes you a bitter little piece <laughs> of garbage and I think as you as you alluded to earlier, their ages, as far as I could tell, are not specific, but it does point out the Lucy-Edmund uh, hierarchy. And you kind of get the sense that Peter and Susan are a few years older than Edmund together. Yeah. Like, they're pretty close. And then these other snotty kids are below them. But Lucy's cool. And she I always, always sort told- of thought of, I thought of Peter as like 14 or maybe 15. All right, and Susan around thirteen, and then Edmund at like ten, and Lucy at eight. That was that was the age I assigned them during my last adult read through of this, which was maybe like five years ago. I've only read them once as an adult. Okay, 
I I probably read this book assuming they were all two years younger than that, but that's so which is I, fine. Yeah, if I get there, that's, we'll figure it out. It's a little loosey goosey. It is. So they play and, and, Edmund Goosey. Edmund Goosey. <laughs> they play hide and seek, um, and her and Edmund both end up in there again. Um, I'm not quite well, sure why. Edmund's being a little he's being a jerk about the whole fun time of her. because he's yeah. like, oh, I'm gonna go in this wardrobe and I'm gonna make fun of her and blah 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 but yes. then he goes in there and he's actually in Narnia he's actually in Narnia and she runs off she's already run off to go party with Mr. Tumnus again <laughs> and this woman rides up in a sleigh with uh, I don't think it has bells on it she's just riding up in a sleigh and there's a dwarf with her and she's kind of scary but she's kind of pretty and Same. she's all white like her skin is like like not it's like supernaturally white um same (laughs) yeah uh and she starts talking to edmund and sweet talking him and he is like kind of hungry and he's kind of cold so she like offers him some delicious hot chocolate like she pours a drop from some magic cup and like gives him this delicious hot chocolate and then she's like hey what food do you want to eat? Because he's hungry. And he mm-hmm. says, Turkish delight, please. And she pours another drop on the ground. And lo and behold, there's Turkish delight just sitting can there. You, do you have a description of the Turkish delight from the book that you can read? Yeah, I will do my best. Um, the queen let drop, let another drop fall from her bottle onto the snow. And instantly there appeared a round box tied with green silk ribbon which when opened turned out to contain several pounds of the best Turkish delight. That's so much Turkish delight. Each piece was sweet and light to the very center, and Edmund had never tasted anything more delicious. He was quite warm now and very comfortable. And so while he's chowing down on this stuff, uh, she is asking him about his family. Oh, wait, he has two sisters and a brother. That's four daughters and sons of Adam and Eve. Uh, it'd be great if you could go get them. I'll make you a prince and give you all the Turkish delight you want. So lo and behold, Edmund has been recruited to the dark side over some effing candy. Mm-hmm. Now, Andrew, mm-hmm. you wanted to do something very special for this episode. Mm-hmm. Would you like to tell the audience what we're about to do? So Turkish delight, if you've never seen or had it before, um, also called locum. Is a uh, it's a here's the I'm just gonna read straight from Wikipedia. It's a family of confections based on a gel of starch and sugar, and um, so there are a lot of different varieties of this. But it's basically like think somewhere between like Jello and gummy candy, um, and it's often covered with like powdered sugar or some other kind of sugar to prevent the little cubes from clinging to each other. Um, it comes in a lot of different varieties. Some of them have fruit suspended in them. Some of them come with chocolate over top of it. But I believe the traditional version, at least like what would be considered the traditional version in uh, England, is a like a pink rose flavored version of it that's covered in powdered sugar. So I went on Amazon.com and I found a packet of this is i believe one pound of turkish delight i can't believe edmund ate pounds of it 
one pound of Turkish delight flavored with rose petals. Okay. And, uh, so I've I've got some here. Craig's got some on his end, and we've neither of us have ever had it before. I just thought it would be fun if we both uh, we both ate the candy that made a little kid sell out his entire family to the White Witch. Yeah, I just gotta say I don't care for candy that isn't chocolate. I'm I don't ch- know if I knew this about, but does that does that extend to like jelly beans? Yep, and hate like lollipops. Uh, never had one. I hate Jolly it. Ranchers, yep. Skittles. No, thank you. Twizzlers. Um, no. Red vines. Nope. Not even pulling peels. Not. <laughs> Not even pulling peels. If it is not chocolate, by the foot. I have av- no. I have avoided it all my life. Man, I f- I don't know what it is. I'm at this point. I'm scared to cross the Rubicon because I don't even, know what I will. S- did in- you have a fruit roll up? Even like you could punch out the little shapes. Nope, never have. Gummy bears. Uh uh-uh. uh. No, thank you. Man, there's a chance that like one accidentally floated into my mouth or like someone threw it at me and I swallowed it like as a kid, but I've never voluntarily eaten a gummy candy of any kind. All right. So describe the dish to me. Just describe what you're seeing and holding and smelling. (laughs) I am most surprised by the fact that it doesn't really smell like anything to me. No, it doesn't. I'm trying really hard not to get upset about this you put a bunch of them in a ziploc bag so that i could keep them in my kitchen and it it looks like i have cut a bunch of chicken cubes and floured them so that i can fry them for like chicken nugget cubes mm-hmm. um it doesn't i'm holding it with my hand i know it is not chicken i will not get salmonella and do you can you just like grasp one in no, your I'm, hands and I'm just ho- like yeah I'm holding it right now. How does it how does it feel to you? It, it has a, it's like firm, but it's got a little bit of give to it. I'm not sure if and the I sugar's should, just going everywhere. I don't know if I should. Yeah, it really is, huh? I don't know if I should take a bite of it or just toss it all in my mouth and hope for the best. <laughs> I will do the one you do. Which one are you gonna do? I think you just gotta put it in there and just, just start it in there. Just start chewing. Okay, so here we go. The live on air, we are both gonna eat a piece of Turkish delight. I hate this so much. <laughs> I love this. Okay, I'm gonna count us down to three and oh three, two, one. Then you pop it in. Okay. Okay. All right. Ready? Yeah. Okay. Three, two, one. Ooh. Oh, oh man. Oh. <laughs> I'm still going. Ooh. Turkish delights out of my mouth. I have, if I'm gonna do the rest of this podcast, I can't swallow it. Ooh. Yo. Okay. So since you have no other frame of reference for this, I'm gonna say the texture is like those um like the sugar-covered orange slices, like the gummy orange slices. I bet it is. So it's like, what if somebody made a sugar orange slice, except they made it taste kind of like soap? Yo, that was heinous. And that's where I am with Turkish delight. Did you even eat it? Did you spit it out into the cup that you brought? Your spit cup? I spit it out into a paper towel and balled it up and threw it away. (laughs) Yo, I took one bite. I crunched it open and I almost. Oh, no.
I'm not sure what it is. I think it's a texture thing. I think it's like a sticky thing. I don't mind the texture because I actually like the I like the candy orange slices every once in a while. But yeah, the Yo. flavor of it is just like. Okay, let's talk about man. the fact that Edmund's gonna sell his family for some garbage candy. I'm gonna go back in. No, oh, how can you do it? The f- oh man. I- oh wait. So- for science, I bit through this one oh. so I could see what's inside it. Oh, you've got dust on your lips. No. Yeah. <laughs> looks like It looks like Check flesh. it out. It's got like little bits of leaf in it, like rose leaf, I no, think. No, I hate it. Ugh. Oh, no. It looks like you, it does, you look like it's meat. It looks like it's it meat. It does look like weird Ugh. candy meat. Oh, man. I don't know, though, like. Once you get over it tasting kind of bad, like, I don't know. Can we talk about the book again, please? Mm. Okay. Well, let's you talk. Kinda, you talk. Well, um, you keep. Yeah. <laughs> I do want to uh, point listeners to uh, a. I feel like I'm eating decorative soap. <laughs> like if I, like if you accidentally ate some potpourri thinking it was like chips, it would probably taste like Turkish delight. <laughs> I do want to point listeners to the Man, Twitter sugar everywhere. Oh my gosh, the Twitter feed of uh, Daniel Jose Older, uh, who we have we have read for the show. I read his book Shadow Shaper. If you go to twitter.com/djolder, uh, he is reading this book alongside The Wind in the Willows, and he brought up two points about Turkish delight. Uh, in conversation with some readers of his. One is that uh, during the war, there might have been sugar rationing going on, so all candy would have been delicious, but Edmund seems specifically excited about Turkish Delight. Uh, and there is, like, a very... I don't know how f- how much, like, literature there is to back this up, but, like, you could, based on the name of it, in like infer that this is Edmund being tempted away from Christianity. I think that's a little heavy handed, but he's certainly making a bargain with the devil here. Um, so he eats this garbage candy and, and the taste of it is like cumulative. Too. Yo, like if you just, eat two of them. It just like, there is like more, just more in your mouth. <laughs> I need you back. I need you to help. I need you to come back. I'm here. I'm just, uh, and he meets. Oh, so Edmund meets back up with Lucy after basically I'm promising. Just, just looking to my sins. <laughs> after promising to the White Witch that he would round his family up for her, and uh, Lucy's like, "Yo, I party with Mister Tumnus. What did you do?" And he's like, "Totally nothing." And they head back into the wardrobe, and he starts saying that she's still lying. Uh, one of the things I haven't mentioned is that it, when you come out of the wardrobe, no time has passed. So time passes in Narnia differently than it passes on mm-hmm. Earth One or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So to like, sh- they both come out, and it does, I believe Lucy goes out and runs to try and find Peter and Susan so yes. they can tell them about their wardrobe and adventures. And then Edmund, in perhaps his lowest moment, correct in the book. Though there there are many. There's a buffet of low moments for Edmund. Sure, old Edmund. He 
deliberately lies to Peter and Susan and tells yeah. them that no, Lucy is lying and they were just pl- pretending. And so they go to the kooky professor and Peter and Susan are like, yo, professor, what's the deal with this? Uh, and he's like, what if Narnia existed? And they're like, yeah, but Lucy says that time passes and if something's real, then it's there all the time. And he goes, are you sure? So there's like, <laughs> there's a real quick just like, hey, what about faith argument that the professor makes like pretty early on? Just like believing in Narnia at all, believing in the ability to get there um, is like this initial act of faith, right? So later on, they all end up ditching into Narnia to avoid a housekeeper that they're kind of scared of. Uh, I think her name is Ms. McCready. And they get I just to keep tasting it. You know how like <laughs> they say like if you take LSD, some of it can get loose and like you can have weird flashbacks because some of it's still in your system. Yeah. I think that's wrong, but it's like that. I keep getting Turkish delight taste. Yeah, you're having flashbacks. Like, the will time I you ever? Ate Turkish delight? Will every meal I eat after this turn to rose flavored ashes in my <laughs> mouth? I I never want to experience what I just experienced ever again. I I haven't retched in a long time. That was awful. <laughs> uh, so they go back into Narnia, and Peter and Susan are like, yo, it's real. Edmund, you're a jerk. <laughs> and they take some coats because it's cold, and they Lucy's like, let's go party with my friend, Mr. Tumnus. And also, another thing that I really liked is they take the coats, and they figure, well, technically, I guess we're still inside the wardrobe, so we're not really stealing these yeah, coats. Yeah, these coats are still in the wardrobe. <laughs> this this all works out. Uh, and they find a note from the White Witch that uh, Mr. Tumnus has been arrested for not turning over children when he should have, and everyone's freaking out. Um, and Lucy's like, yo, we gotta save him. And So rather than just like leaving the wardrobe land um they decide to press on and they discover some beavers and they come upon this beaver and i made a note here they discover this beaver and they're not sure if it's like a good beaver or a bad beaver (laughs) and they're not sure what they're supposed to do like lucy's like oh i think it's a nice beaver um susan's like i don't know if we should risk it and peter says come on let's give it a try all keep close together we ought to be a match for one beaver if it turns out to be an enemy (laughs) (laughs) peter's totally cool just like rolling up on a beaver yeah like i could whip a beaver if i needed to so let's just go let's see what's up uh and so the beaver actually turns out to be cool and he invites him back to the to to invites everybody back to his dam and they hang out with his wife, Mrs. Beaver. Um, and th- this is where they learn all I about... I hate that their names are Mr. and Mrs. Mr. Beaver. Like Mrs. every other animal Beaver. has a name. And then it's Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. <laughs> uh, they learn all about Care Paravel. Uh, and they learn about Aslan, who is this lion, who is the king of the wood. The son of the emperor beyond the sea. Uh, and there's this moment where when Aslan's name is first mentioned, um, and this is where it's like, it's not exact allegory, but you can see Lewis like transcribing elements of the Christian faith and the experience of the Christian faith. Um, At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside, 
Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. So there's this sense that just even hearing the name of this miraculous lion that they've never met before like fills them with the most essential feeling of themselves, which is mm-hmm. makes sense. Sure. Um, though here, you know what doesn't make sense in this beaver scene, Andrew? What's that? Why does that beaver have a sewing machine? Why does Mrs. Beaver have a sewing machine? What does a beaver need with a sewing machine? I also, where do they build sewing machines in Narnia? <laughs> what is the like economic industrial I complex? Can, I can make. Uh, pounds, pounds and pounds of Turkish delight with one magical drop, and you're gonna get like maybe there are just wardrobe entrance doors all over place in Narnia, and some of them are just like sewing closets. Okay. So every once in a while, you're wandering through the woods. Boom! You find like everyone's old games of Monopoly. They're like missing some of the pieces and stuff, and then the beavers take them back into Narnia, and they're just there now. See, that would see that's a book. That's a cool book. That's like Monsters Inc., but with more stealing. Monsters Inc. with stealing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the beavers are telling them more about Aslan. Um, and at, they keep saying that Aslan is on the move. Like maybe winter is going to come to an end. Maybe the White Witch is going to be defeated. And I made a note of this. It reminded me of the early sections of the Lord of the Rings where everyone's talking about how Sauron's on the move. Like he is growing and gaining power. And it just felt like this odd. I know that those these books were probably written mostly in parallel. Um but it was an interesting inversion of that trope based on on the reference point that I had. That like yeah. the, the good guy is mysteriously out there, like getting ready for the fight to come. Though I guess you'd say, and and this, I feel like maybe gets to like the second coming sort of stuff, uh-huh. where like there are branches of Christianity, and the, and the one that I came up with included that are like. Yeah, the second, like, Jesus is going to come back. Second coming's not only is it coming, but it's, like, imminent-ish. Yeah, sure. Like, realistic to expect that this would happen within our lifetime. So, like, probably there are believers of Aslan who are just like, yeah, he's always out there. Yeah, yeah, he's he's on the move. He's coming. He's going (laughs) to save us from whatever. Well, but then and maybe like this this time they happen to be right, but like yeah, what other times not? that yeah. sort of supposition will be vague enough that you could always say, well, it's just not the right time. He's you know well, and and again that gets to how this is a, I think purposefully muddy allegory where this book, as we will discuss, uh, Aslan ends up going through like the death and the crucifixion, um. And, or and the, the crucifixion and the resurrection. So at this point, like the messianic second coming thing, isn't quite like a one to one analogy. Sure. Um, but it yeah, you're right. It's still reminiscent of that general vibe. Um, so when we when we zoom through the rest of this will, plot, because I know will. you had in your in your notes, you had a bunch of specific stuff that you wanted to yeah. make sure we got to. So, so Edmund, uh, while they're talking about Aslan and while these two beavers are basically bullying kids into getting ready to talk to a lion, um, <laughs> Edmund sneaks away 
to go get more Turkish delight because he the the White Witch told him where to go I and can't. why he's, why I know. would you? Uh, and all the, I taste in my mouth is the soap <laughs> part now. And the beavers realize that Edmund snuck away and that they're going to be in trouble soon, so they like run off with the kids to get to safety. Uh, they got to go find Aslan at the stone table. And Edmund like walks around on his own. He's thinking about what he's going to do as prince, and like the first thing he wants to do is make some decent roads, so walking around doesn't suck so hard. <laughs> uh, he ends up at the White Witch's castle, where he sees all these statues. He sees a lion that I thought was going to be Aslan, so I made a note that he like when he draws on its face, it's like he's drawing on Jesus's face or like on a painting of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not true. It's a different lion. Like that lady who ruined yes. that painting. <laughs> like that lady who ruined that painting. <laughs> uh, and he learns upon re-meeting the White Witch that she really doesn't like him very much at all. Um, and she's not going to give him Turkish delight. She's going to give him crappy bread and gruel. And she needs him to like show her where his family is. Uh, and the kids escape with the beavers, as I said. It starts to be... It, just before it becomes like summer or spring again... Someone special shows up. Father Christmas shows up. He just kind of rolls up in a sleigh. Yeah, like all gets... of a sudden it's Santa. Here's literally <laughs> Santa. And he's like, hey, she's been keeping me out of here for a while, but Aslan's coming, so I'm allowed back in. Here's some presents. Peter, you got a sword and shield. Lucy, That's, that's crazy. <laughs> like, hey, I'm Santa. I'm real. Here's a sword. Kill Lucy, somebody. Lucy, you are either six or eight, and you get a knife and some healing potions. Hey, kid, I'm Santa. Hey, it's me, Santa. Here's a knife. Susan gets a magical horn and some bows and arrows, or a bow and some arrows. Uh, and she's told that she probably shouldn't use it because he doesn't want her to get in trouble or hurt, which is very nice of Santa. And then he runs if away. If you don't want kids to get hurt, don't give them only weapons. You gave all these kids weapons. Yeah. Santa, so, so old the, Saint Nick drinking a Coke <laughs> and giving out knives. <laughs> uh, so winter is over and Aslan is here, and the kids roll up to the stone table, and Aslan's having a party with like some centaurs. And, and it's like some, pretty much springtime at this point, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and meanwhile, the White Witch is like in her sleigh. Like, why is all the snow going away? What's wrong? She sends some wolves to go like kill everyone and find out what's going on. Um, there's a little bit of a fight and Peter totally just jacks up a wolf, like totally just stabs a wolf in the chest with his Santa sword. Yeah. And Aslan, like a boss is like, don't, don't forget to clean your sword, Peter. Like, don't forget to wipe the blood off your sword, Peter Wolfsbane. Whoa. (laughs) And so the thing about Aslan, which is interesting, I'm Santa. Here's a sword. (laughs) Make sure the lion tells you what to do with it. You listen to him. The thing about Aslan is that he clearly loves these kids and he's excited for them to become kings and queens of Narnia, which they don't really understand yet. Um, but he is also kind of scary on account of being a lion. Yeah, right. He's still a lion. Um, and that, I think, is like an interesting version of like the the parts of Jesus that are not just like... Hey, love everyone. Well, it's the, like, like New, smash New the Testament temple Jesus. New Testament God meets Old Testament God. Yeah, like, a little bit. God, you want like God is cool. Like you're generally pro God, but also he's very powerful and scary. Yes. Um. So the witch shows up, and they have to broker a deal for Edmund because she wants to kill Edmund, 
and uh, Aslan's like, "Hey, listen, let's let's work something out here." And he nobody knows what the deal is, but Aslan's super sad, and he lets like Susan and Lucy like trail him as he goes back to the stone table, and uh, the White Witch and all of her like evil animal friends. Um, sure, they tie him up, they shave him, they muzzle him. And they stab him, and they kill him, uh, and it's pretty bad news. So this is basically the crucifixion. Yeah, it's pretty explicit. It's pretty messed up. <laughs> um, and then, like, like post crucifixion, Susan and Lucy come forward, and they like clean him, and they care for him. Like women are caring, caring for him, like the Marys. Um, the the thing that I was struck by is this, as I said, this relationship to the reader or or the kid that you might be reading this book to. Um, there's this passage after Aslan has died, and it says, I hope no one who reads this book has been quite as miserable as Susan and Lucy were that night. But if you have been, if you've been up all night and cried till you have no more tears left in you, you will know that there comes in the end a sort of quietness. You feel as if nothing was ever going to happen again. At any rate, that was how it felt to those two. And like, for me, passages like that are kind of scattered throughout the book. And that's what really makes this book sing. Sure. Um, Yeah. Like there's just this care for the reader and for the listener uh, or, you know, vice versa. um, That makes the story a, a little bit more present. So I was then surprised that Aslan comes back very quickly. <laughs> um, <laughs> Don't they, they basically turn their backs on the table and then it breaks. Yeah, a bunch of mice show up and help him get untied. And then the stone table breaks and blammo, he wakes back up. and He's like, like sup? <laughs> and he roars really loud. I'm a lion. And, uh, Let's go kick some butt. Yep. But before he has to kick butt, he has to run to the castle and he breeds on a bunch of statues to bring them back to life. Um, there's like this whole, it's like, he just cat breeds on all of them with his cat breath. Uh, and there's like a giant and there's some more centaurs and they rex- they rescue Mr. Tumnus. Um, there's a lion that's very flattered to be running around with Aslan. When Aslan's like, hey, us lions will be at the front. And this lion's like, us lions? I'm with, I'm a lion too. Yeah, that lion's a goof. He's a big goof. Uh, And they run back to Peter and the rest of the animals who are still hanging out. Um, You see Peter fighting the witch. I made a note, it's like an anime fight. Like there's a bit where their swords are clashing so fast that you like can't see the swords. Which I don't know how Peter got that good at sword fighting so fast. I mean, he killed a wolf. He did kill a wolf, so now he's an can expert. You, can you step back like a, a just yeah, a second yeah. and um, talk about the reconciliation with Edmund? Oh, sure. That comes because we kind of alighted over that, and there is a point in this book where Edmund stops being such a little pissant. But uh, there's this. He is brought forward. Um, he'd been brought into camp. And Aslan, like, walks forward with him, uh, and he, like, has a conversation with him. And the book says, There is no need to tell you, and no one ever heard what Aslan was saying. But it was a conversation which Edmund never forgot. Uh, And he says to the rest of them, Here is your brother, and there is no need to talk to him about what is past. 
and he says, I'm sorry, and everyone says, that's all right. Uh, which is like, I th- is that what you're meant? Is that what you're talking yeah. about? It's yeah, like yeah. oddly simple and really powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, there, <laughs> uh, later after Aslan just like totally stomps on the witch and kills her, and Lucy is running around giving like healing potions to Edmund and everyone, and she's being kind of slow about it because she's lingering on Edmund. Um, Aslan does toss some shade at Edmund. He says, Lucy, must more people die for Edmund? <laughs> uh, but that's after, yeah, after Edmund has been redeemed. So then they are they are successful. They are named the kings and queens of Narnia. Um, they all grow up and live there for a long time. Yep, for like um, a couple decades or something. They become King Peter the Magnificent, Susan the Gentle, Edmund the Just, Lucy the Valiant, uh, they become older people who rule the kingdom. They start speaking like British cartoons. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure why they do that because no one in Narnia talks like that. No, Aslan's like, like totally cool to just talk to you normally. And these kids live here for a couple decades and they forget what a lamppost is. So like Mr. Tumnus <sighs> rolls up and he's like, yo, there's a white stag. You should go hunt it. It grants wishes. And because like, Lewis is like, what other myth haven't I referenced? Um, so the and white also, stag- like, why would they need wishes? Like, hey, we we live in a fantasy land where we chill with beavers, and Santa <laughs> shows up and just gives everybody swords every Christmas. We got swords out the butt, and now we need to go. Like, I need to find the stag so I can wish for Santa to stop giving me so many swords. I already have swords. <laughs> I need Santa. A tra- I need a train set. I'm a child. <laughs> Uh, like they they follow the white stag to the lamppost near the wardrobe, and Peter says, "Here is a great marvel, for I seem to see a tree of iron." You're like Peter, dude, why didn't you, you invent it? typewriters or something in Narnia? Wake up, sheeple, yeah. Um, so they go back through the wardrobe, and they're kids again, and as if they never left. Um, which seems like a like a recipe for a nervous breakdown. <laughs> that would have to be very confusing. <laughs> Especially, like, what if you had reached sexual maturity and then all of a sudden you just weren't anymore? There's a line where Lucy's, where they talk about how everyone wants to marry Lucy because she's so pretty and cool. And it's like, she's what, eight again? Yeah. Not great. It's like big. Um, (laughs) Oh, God, big. (laughs) uh, And then the professor's like, yo, I hope Narnia was cool. I bet bet you'll find it again someday. Wink. Wink, wink. So that's. That's the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's, I mean, it's a cool book. I yeah, get... so you you tend to be the one who gets to read fantasy stuff because you missed out on a lot of that stuff. So, yes. like, compare and contrast with Tolkien, I guess, in particular. Because I know you didn't want to do a ton easiest, of it as we yeah. went through the synopsis, but I think it's probably the most interesting comparison to make. Well, and, and you can compare it to Tolkien and it immediately then be comparing it to every other fantasy yeah, story. Yeah, I mean, I, I can say for, for my part, um, I think I may have liked Narnia more as a kid because sure. it was a little more accessible. But the last time I read all these books, I definitely, like, they were just less satisfying. There was less emotional depth and like plot depth to them. I thought Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, there are still moments that work, but the gap between the best of the series and the worst of the series just gets wider. 
yeah, if you come to it with a more like critical eye, I don't know. Well, and from reading this book, I get no sense that there needs to be another book or what is going to oh, yeah, happen. There's six more books. That's yeah. So that's the thing. Like unlike the Tolkien, this one does stand yeah, alone. This one really as does. its own. More so maybe than any of the other stories. Um, I would say that Lewis, in his uh, excitement to suppose what would happen if a Christ-like figure occurred in a fantasy world, um, he does not spend as much time, like, as Tolkien, certainly, like, fleshing out the ramifications of this other world. Right. At least, at least in this book, and it, and it sounds like Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't in the other books. Um, this is really concerned about kind of concerned with the emotional beats of these kids um, and a couple of moments along the way for Aslan's journey as this like, I guess, sort of creator of the world sort of in that kind of like he's both the son of the emperor beyond the sea, but he's also the king of the woods Right. And sometimes he's here and sometimes like he kind of just slinks away at the end of the story. Yeah. And like, he'll be around, I guess, because he's Aslan. Other the subsequent books do do a bit more like fleshing out of the world, but it never feels like like with Tolkien. It felt like even in The Hobbit, it felt like that world was there. And at least sure. some thought had gone into it. Just like the 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 particular book you're reading might not go into all of it. For Lewis's, it's more like. Like if you play a video game and then you play like a like a think of like a big RPG or something that lets you like go all over its world and explore every nook and cranny. And then you come back for a sequel set in the same world and you're like, well, where was all this stuff? (laughs) Where is all this new stuff? Like he just kind of invents new locations and kingdoms and stuff as he needs to for like to expand the world and expand the plot. Yeah, so this like the, is... so like the so Prince Caspian is set like a thousand years because just as time in our world kind of stops when you're in Narnia, mm-hmm. time in Narnia like you're never sure how long it's gonna be between. Yeah, visits. yeah. So like for the gap between the first one and Prince Caspian, it's like a year in the real world, but it's like a thousand years in Narnia. And then for Don Treader, it's like another year in the real world and like ten, fifteen years in Narnia. See that's like that's so he, kind he of uses exciting. That, yeah, yeah, he uses he uses that Lucy Gooseness to just tell whatever story he wants to to tell. But, well, um, and that's that would be interesting. That is potentially like exciting to me as as a reader to be like, oh, why? Whether or not he ever explains why that is, like the characters discovering Narnia in new ways is kind of interesting. I think this. Well, it's this, interesting in this in the second book in particular because. Sure they are now themselves mythological figures that are coming back. Oh, neat. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You see similar stories to this. So we've read other books I've read for the show, like the dark is rising and the magicians are probably two other books that are, that are worth citing uh, in relationship to this one, both in, in the sense that like, here's the normal world and you can go into the other world where stuff is magic and people talk about magic and it's not fleshed out with the like linguistic care of a Tolkien Mm -hmm. because it's all there to serve a plot in the same way that like the earlier 
Harry Potter books certainly feel feel lived in. Or they but have- again, like nobody nobody has gone through and established a comprehensive rule set for this world before they even started writing books. it. Yeah, because like for a writer, like Tolkien was a was a linguist and he studied myth and he he did all this stuff. Like he was really concerned with. Like, okay, where do these stories come from? Like, he was really invested in creating all these languages and and building all these worlds and stuff. But if you're a writer, first and foremost, like, that's the boring part. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, you kind of just want to sketch as much of that as you need to to set up, like, a basic rule set for the particular story that you want to tell. Uh-huh. And you can get in more trouble with that later as you're expanding your world, but it also... Like, like again, like Lewis cranked out seven of these things in as many years or maybe a couple fewer. And Tolkien labored over Lord of the Rings for like decades and decades. He'd labored over Silmarillion for longer and never actually finished it before he died. Like it's. And, and I think this. Yeah. The, that approach also dovetails with how Lewis approached the allegory or didn't approach it. So there's another quote of his from Of Other Worlds um, where he says. Some people seem to think that I began by asking myself how I could say something about Christianity to children, then fixed on the fairy tale as an instrument, then collected information about child psychology and decided what age group I'd write for, then drew up a list of basic Christian truths and hammered out allegories to embody them. This is all pure moonshine. I couldn't write it in that way. It all began with images, a fawn carrying an umbrella, a queen on a sledge, a magnificent lion... At first, there wasn't anything Christian about them. That element pushed itself in of its own accord. And I, yeah, I can see that. And I, that, a, I think yeah. that comes through in like the general looseness. Some would say sloppiness of the allegory. Yeah, because he's not he's not trying to like f- have you crack a code. I think he's trying to uh, create similar emotional beats to stories from the bible where it's like Mm -hmm. this is oh what if you've what if this you know magical creature came up and saved you and was going to be responsible for the future of this world and then you watched it die and then it came back and helped you do these amazing things yeah and if if you'd spent a lot of time studying the bible and those story arcs it would make sense that any story that you told would naturally sort of look to those oh yeah stories and those arcs for inspiration there's there's apparently there's a reading of the death of aslan uh about the his like death on the stone table symbolizing mosaic law so then it's broken which is when we move from the old testament to the new testament theology and like sure I feel like the the source material is a little too. It's thin. It's purposefully it's a li- thinner than yeah. That. It's a, it's it's too thin to bear that reading. I think like you can make that reading if you want, but I don't. I don't know that you have a particularly solid leg to stand on in that when, one. When you're getting into like the study of Christianity as a religion, and this book's supposed to do that, I don't think so. He is certainly riffing on imagery from the Bible and particularly Jesus's story to do so. Right. Um, but I, th- yeah, I, I, I'm not sure if I am here for like meta commentary on the evolution of religion in <laughs> the lion, the witch and the wardrobe. 
Um, and there also may be some of that in later books. Yeah, and the witch is such an interesting bad guy because she just she's just a greedy person who wants to turn people into stone, like and hang out with gross animals. She like, just wants it to be always winter and never Christmas. Well, I I don't get why you would make it always Christmas and never anything else, but because Santa's just right around giving people <laughs> knives. He does give some foxes a tea party, and the witch turns those foxes into stone, which, like, thanks, Santa. <laughs> Not cool, I forgot bro. about that. Not cool. Uh, so that's the line, the witch in the wardrobe, Andrew. How's that Turkish delight treating you? I have it, The taste is mostly out of my mouth. Okay. And I'm very happy about it. Um, I'm sorry that I, could, I couldn't even bear to swallow it. I'm glad we gave it a try. I I do. I worry that you didn't get enough. That I you like didn't give it enough of a chance. It, you know? No, I I gave it as much chance as my body could bear. I just I don't know. If you, the listener, have strong feelings about Turkish Delight, and oh hey, did you want to know more Narnia stuff, or like do you think you're oh. gonna read the rest of these? Oh books yeah. Later? Oh, you wanted to spoil some Narnia stuff for me? Please do it. Uh, I'm not gonna. You- you're not going to read them? If I right. do, I would pick and choose rather than like go through. So just tell me what's up. Here's some cool stuff with Narnia is that you can age out. Oh. So Prince Caspian is the original four kids come back. And they hang out and they have some adventures and they meet Aslan again. And Aslan tells Peter and Susan, hey, you're like, you're not going to be let in anymore. Oh. Because you're too old or something. And so... um. The third book is like Edmund and Lucy, and then their like their crappy cousin, like think <laughs> sub sub Edmund cousin, okay, who goes through a similar like redemption arc. Like they come through, and then Edmund and Lucy aren't going to be in, allowed in anymore. Mm. And it's like it's partially an age and like a belief thing. Yeah, like a like a a faith of a child sort of thing. Okay. And then, okay, so you skip ahead to the seventh book, and Narnia is getting destroyed. Like, you're in the final days of Narnia, like, as a world, as a universe. Mm -hmm. And then there's, like, this super, there's this, like, beyond Narnia version of Narnia that's basically heaven. Well, yeah. And it's where everyone from the real world goes when they die. But oh. not, but not everybody. Okay, because all the Pevensies are on a train going somewhere, and the train crashes, and they all go to heaven. But not Susan because she she like lost her faith in Narnia, and she just liked makeup and boys too much, and so she wasn't allowed in. I feel like some people have probably had problems with that. Yeah, yeah, it's not great. I. Like she, what I think the, I was hoping that this was what this was. I think Neil Gaiman wrote an essay called "The Problem of Susan," that's or like a short story, where it it's actually like secretly about Susan. And the quote from the book from the last battle is that she only cares about nylons, lipsticks, and invitations. Yeah, that's pretty much the deal. And it's yeah, so so it that's just the that's a. So, like, aging out of Narnia, that feels like kid fantasy, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Not being allowed into heaven because you, like, make up too much Mm-mm. feels a little too allegory And it's a, it's a, just an example of how the books, 
I don't know if laziness is is the right word, but I think they lean on the allegorical end of things a little more sure. than they they ought to, or a little more than than Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe did. Okay, so. okay. So yeah, there's some stuff. All right then. So I'm done now. You're done. Yeah. Okay. I'm done forever. <laughs> forever. Uh, Andrew, you enjoy more Turkish delight. I'm gonna thank everyone who reached out to us on social media. Oh, do you uh, really need me to do another one? Oh, uh, if you can, Twitter.com/slash/overduepod or Facebook.com/slash/overduepod. I want to thank Brittany, Sean, Kalen, Pumper, Nicholson, Michael, Graham, who's been tweeting us pictures of his socks all week. Uh, Bob, Carrie, Melissa. <laughs> sound, I'm delighted by that. You sound. <laughs> No, I I enjoy it too. Uh, Steampunk Cavalier, Lucas, wow. worst the worst bestsellers podcast. Uh, Celeste, CT and KW, Mel, oh. the Epilogue podcast, Boven, Nicola, Two Boss Dames, Mrs. W, Ms. WT, excuse me, Jocelyn, Kate, uh, Becky, Starfish Chick, Sophie, Rebecca, Glenn, Katie, Joanne, uh, who got our craps last tape reference last week, Duh. Ray, Sarah, Hannah, and Albie. Uh, you can also write us an email at Overdue Pod. Oh, it's, like a, it's like a perfume marshmallow. OverduePod at gmail.com. Andrew, mm. if you can talk through the Turkish delight, where should folks go to learn more about the show? Oh, my God. They should go to OverduePodcast.com. Where we have links to iTunes, RSS, Stitcher, Google Play. You can use all those feeds to subscribe to the show. If you subscribe on iTunes, rate and review us. Because we ate Turkish Delight for you, and we deserve five stars, and that helps us rise in the rankings, and it makes us feel better about ourselves. Um, ooh, Also up on that website, we have links to the books that we have read and are going to read. We have a link to our Patreon project, which we mentioned earlier. We have a link to Spreaker, our podcast host, and HeadGum, our podcast network. And I think that's everything, right? Yeah, next week you're reading 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Yes, and that's it's revisiting an author. I did um, Love in the Time of Cholera for my for the second ever episode of the show, the first book that I ever read. And I remember being really, really not happy with how that episode came out. So take another crack at Marquez. We're going to see if it goes better this time. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. Andrew, what do you say? At the end of every episode, I'll try to be happy. <laughs> that was a headgum podcast.